Here's the quiz question. Shout out when you see a connection. There are no prizes. What do these people have in common? Got it? So first time you make a connection, shout out the answer for no prizes. Ofer Winfrey, Graham Norton, John Bishop, Michael Parkinson, Terry Wogan. Chat show hosts. Okay. Chat show hosts. There are others we could throw in as well. We live in the era of the chat show host. It's the great skill of that man or that woman to uh, get under the skin, get into the psyche, or at least promote a, vi- a video film or book of the person who's on the sofa. Often it's on a Saturday evening, late night Friday, that sort of thing. Jonathan Ross, you could throw him in there. Um, more of a comedic flavor, but to the good chat show hosts always manage to just get under the skin of people. I think John Bishop is particularly good at this. I think Parkinson set the standard. Ofer Winfrey, she's a different kettle of fish altogether, but very generous at giving out money and prizes, unlike me. We have in these verses, verse 6 to 11 of of the famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, a complete picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he achieved, where he arrived from, where he is now, and why he did it. You've got all of it in these few verses. It is a holy ground sort of passage. If it was a mountain range, it would be like no other. It would, it's the Everest, really, of the New Testament, you could say. And here's another thing that you see in these, passage, in, in these verses, not just where he's come from, not just what he did, not just where he is now. You see into the very mind of the Lord Jesus. And that is an awesome thing. Verse 5 of last week's passage, have the same attitude. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Literally, Paul writes, have the same mind. It's the word mind, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Literally, the word is mind. So when Oprah Winfrey, when John Bishop, when Terry Wogan, when Graham Norton, when they do their thing and they get into the mind of someone, why did you do that? What were you seeking to achieve? Where have you been the last few years? What's in the book? Tell us about it. When they try and get in the mind of whoever it is on their sofa, they're doing it just for that very thing itself. They're trying to get into the mind of someone out of interest. But when Paul gets into the mind of the Lord Jesus, when he explains why Jesus did what he did and where he is now, that has a very different goal. That's to change your mind. That's to transform our thinking. That's to help us understand how we should behave. So that verse 3 of last week's passage, we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This whole hymn is fascinating. Where he was, where he went, and where he is now. Three things. Firstly, Jesus is God. This passage says unashamedly that Jesus is God. Now, there's no passage that more powerfully shows this, arguably, in the whole of the New Testament. It's very intense, and there are two ways, at least, that Jesus is revealed as God. Verse 6 It says, first of all, being in very nature God. Now, Paul uses this Greek word that is uh, the word morphe. 
Now, I show my age when I, s- I remember Morph. Do you remember Morph? That little kind of plasticine character. There's a few people even older than me. I won't say who they are who are nodding. But um, the English Standard Version, if you've got that on your screen, tablet or lap, it has the word form. He was in the form of God. Now, that is unhelpful at best. There's a picture on the screen. That's DNA. To have the DNA of someone shows that you have the very same matter that controls your characteristics, your fleshly attributes, your, your human nature, and so on. The word form has to do with outward appearances. They have the form of someone. They have the shape of someone. That bag has the form of, of nacho chips in there, but then it was emptied of that form last night at about 9.40 by me. It's outward appearances, parish uh, pa- Paris Fashion Show Week is on. It's all about outward appearance and form. That's not what this word means. Paul says, how, c- how on earth can I begin to explain to you the very characteristic and nature of King Jesus? Well, let me begin. He had in his essence the morphe of God. This is not outward appearance. This is not form. This is the very nature of of Jesus Christ. The very essence of Jesus Christ is just like the essence of water. So water has two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Water is water. No matter where you drink it around the world, it tastes the same. It might not look as clean or as clear, but it tastes the same. Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. You pick up a pencil, an old one, a proper one. It's got wood on the outside, a bit of coloring on it, but in the middle there's lead. That makes a pencil a pencil. DNA. You can see the characteristics of a parent in the child. Same colored eyes, same characteristics and personality and so on. They don't just look the same on the outside. They're not all wearing the same clothes with their Christmas jumpers on. They have the same matter and that's what makes them unique, but also the same, the family likeness. Here is Jesus Christ. Paul says, verse 6, he had the very morphe of God. Jesus is in very nature God. He has the identical qualities as his father. He is the very same substance as his father. He has the same characteristics as his father. There's no stronger way that the Apostle Paul could write this. Jesus Christ is the very being, nature, attributes and characteristics of God. Jesus is fully God. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Here's the second way, verse 6. The magnitude, the size of this claim gets even larger. Verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Grasped, there's a picture on the screen here. Someone's having their handbag snatched from them. It's a violent taking of something that is not yours to take. That's what the word means for grasped. That was not the case with Jesus. This is using a kind of a negation, a negative image to prove something that is true. Jesus did not reach out and grab something that did not belong to him. Jesus is made of the same substance as his father. He was equal with God, but he decided he did not need to hold on to it. He's fully God, but he is so great, greater still, that he thought, I'm not going to keep on holding on to something that is mine. I'm willing to let it go. He's the same substance as God the Father. He's the same being as God the Father. He has the same nature and characteristics as his Father. Unique, but same. 
He is not created. He is the uncreated creator. Our heads are not big enough to grasp this. But this is what Paul is saying. Verse 5. These verses are written to help us to understand. Verse 5. How should this affect our mind? And then verse 6 to 11 follow. Let your mind be impacted and shaped by these things. Verse 3, so that your heart is not full of selfish ambition and vain conceit, vain glory, empty glory. Here's three ways that this massive truth should affect our mind. Number one, optimism. Now there's not a lot of optimism going around at the minute. This reality that Jesus has the very nature uh, of God himself. He is God on earth. Oh, he was. Now he's God in heaven. This should make us very optimistic. If you have a besetting struggle in your life, you think you'll never be able to shake it off. If you have a besetting sin in your character, you think you'll never be able to defeat it. Yes, you can if you're a Christian because you have God in your midst, in your heart. This is the God of all power, of all authority. He's the God who says, I love you and I will never forsake you. I knew who you were before the world was even made and I spoke it into being and now I sustain it by a word of authority and creative power. I am in you by the Holy Spirit. You are mine and I will never say that you don't belong to me anymore. Now that truth that God the Father loves me, that God the Son died for me, that God the Holy Spirit lives in me, that reality should make us very optimistic about our present, very realistic about our forgiven past, and very hopeful about our certain future, shouldn't it? We have much to be thankful for. No condemnation. Boldly I approach. There's something wrong in our mind. And so Paul says, you need to have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. Who is he? Who's in your midst? Very nature, God, fully God, is in your midst by his Holy Spirit. If God is God then that's great news. It's also really sobering news. Here's the second way to apply it. You need to respond to God with optimism because of who he is, but also you need to respond to him um, extremely. You need to respond to God extremely. There's lots of uh, religious extremism and there's lots of cults and there's lots of uh, different convictions and forces in our world. But here's something to get very passionate about the person of Jesus Christ. When you read the Gospels, Matthew's account of Jesus' life, Mark, Luke, and John, there is never neutrality. There's, there's no Switzerland in the New Testament. Right? There's always passionate responses to the person of Jesus Christ, and it's always three. There's either hatred when you see who Jesus is. I hate you, I'm going to try and kill you, like the Pharisees. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Either you're afraid of Jesus and you want to run away from him. I don't know who you are like the, uh, the character who's, uh, who was released from bondage and was thrown into pigs and then the people run away from him. Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? They're so afraid that they run away from Jesus. They're in awe and amazement. But then there's a third reaction. When you see who Jesus is, when you bow at his feet, you're smitten by him like the disciples and you want to build your whole life in orb around his authority. You can't like Jesus. I'm kind of passionate about Instagram and Facebook. I I, I hate them both equally. But you would never like Jesus. You never just approve and give him a thumbs up. You either hate him 
or you run away from him or you bow down before him and worship him and the whole of your life is orbed around him neutrality liking him you just don't understand who Jesus is if you like him you've got to worship him you've got to adore him one more thing verse 3 remember what we're talking about do nothing out of selfish ambition if Jesus is God then there's a whole new dynamic for how we love people now this is Trinitarian this is talking about God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit that the whole Bible describes God three persons but one when God created the world when God created the world he created other people other beings in the spiritual realm that we can't see angels and so on he didn't need to create a thing He didn't need to create to get love. God was not lacking in any one attribute of his nature. Fully satisfied, Father, Son, and Spirit. This this holy dance throughout all eternity. Fully satisfied, fully loving, fully enjoying. But when God made the world, he did not do it to get love. He did it as an expression of his love, as an overflow, like like a fountain, like a waterfall. It's a spillover, not to meet his needs but to express his love and delight, his richness of his character, the goodness of his being. When Jesus came to the earth, he did not come to meet his needs, but to meet our needs. His love was displayed on the cross with arms nailed wide open. One of the ways that you can tell that you do not have, verse 5, the mind of Christ, is that you move towards people not to love them and to serve them, but because you're motivated not by their needs, but by yours. And that's why Paul is saying you need to get the mind of Christ in you. You need to reassess who Jesus is. You need to re-understand the person of Jesus Christ, or you will be filled and fueled by, verse 3, selfish ambition and vain conceit. Jesus was never fueled by selfish ambition and vain conceit. He was fueled by the glory of his Father and our great good. Here are some ways that you could just assess what's your motivation as you move towards people. If you move towards someone to help them out, but they don't respond. If you move towards someone to help them, but they respond with a lack of gratitude to you. They don't act in the way that you expect, and so you're, you're sad and disappointed. Don't you know what I've given up to, to help you? Don't you know what I've sacrificed to meet your needs? Actually, it's a sign that actually perhaps you're not moving towards them to meet your needs, or their needs, but yours. Perhaps you're not moving towards them to, to love them, but because there's something lacking in your heart. You need to have the mind of Christ you continually get hurt in your feelings and in your spirit because they don't know what you have sacrificed for them maybe that shows you that you're meeting your needs rather than theirs verse five what can you do if that's you it's certainly me don't you see i've washed up again when are you going to notice that i put all my energies into that meal wasn't it delicious why have you not said it's delicious verse five have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Christian friend, your identity comes from the very identity that Jesus' source of identity was. It comes from the Trinity. Because of Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross, you will never be driven out of the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unless your bottom line of your identity, your worth, your significance, your sense of approval and acceptance. Unless that comes from who you are in Jesus Christ, you will always be let down. 
you will always be disappointed by people. They will never be able to fill you up and satisfy you as this relationship alone can. Jesus Christ came to give, not to get. He came to serve, not to be served. And a Christian is someone who takes these marvelous truths and applies them to their identity. This marvelous truth that Jesus died for me. I'm accepted, I'm approved, I'm loved, I'm secure, I'm safe, and I'm valued. And it doesn't oscillate up and down like the wind and the waves. Your identity in him is secure. And so people can say what they like. People can reject or accept me. He accepts me. My father loves me and has died for me in his son. Jesus is God. We better move on. That's not all this passage teaches. Jesus is also the God-man. Jesus became the God-man, number two. Jesus is not, if, if your mind is stretched now, just wait till we get to this point. He's not just divine. He's also human. Look at six and seven with me, please. It says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, reach out for, remember? But he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Notice what it does not say. It does not say, having been God, he instead became human. It was not, he took a receipt and then he just exchanged at Primark. He did not just exchange an item of clothing or an identity. He didn't do a Tom Cruise and, and take one mask off and put another one on. It says, being God, he also became human so what you have here is 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 the god man jesus christ two thousand years ago who walked the earth and he is 100 percent human but he's also 100 percent god in one person walking the earth subject to all our limitations all our needs fully man fully god jesus christ walked the earth as the god man he didn't just stop being god and became human He became both at once. Now, how should that, verse 5, affect your mind? Of all the religions in the world, Christianity is the only religion to whom matter truly matters. That's one of the things that we can deduce from this. You can go to the West, and there's the Greco-Roman religions. And uh, matter doesn't really matter to religions of the West. It's kind of polluted. God could never become human. Ask any Muslim. Very, very offensive. But then you can go to the religions of the East. And uh, to the religions of the East, they don't see matter as being impure, but it sure is unimportant. It doesn't matter. We're more concerned with purity of thought, of emptying yourself, and of an ethereal understanding of reality. Matter is just an illusion. So East and West have different opinions on matter. Christianity says God inhabited a permanent physical body. Our God is the only God who has wounds. But as Daniel read at the start of the service, Colossians 2.9 says this, For in him the fullness, for in him the fullness of God lives in bodily form. If only God had walked the earth, if only God was one of us, then I could believe in him. He did. You just missed him. 2,000 years ago, Almighty God took on the reality of our limitations. Now, here's what I want to press you on. If this is true, then Christianity 
has an ability to put together the importance of soul, mind and spirit with matter in a way that no other religion has. So matter matters to Christianity and so does the human heart and human soul. It's not one is more important than the other. There's not a hierarchy. Both are significant and important. Then there's an integrity to the whole Bible that lets us understand this. The Bible begins with God getting his hands dirty. He speaks a word of authority and creative power and the world and the cosmos is made and we're still looking into it with telescopes, seeing more and more beauty. But he gets his hands dirty in matter as he creates the world. But then what happens at the end of the Bible? At the end of the Bible, he's, he's creating a new reality, a new heavenly Jerusalem where he will dwell perfectly forever in an unstained, unspoiled way. Right in the middle of the Bible, these two great cornerstones of Christianity. You've got Christmas. Who loves a bit of Christmas? Not just the retailers. Christians should love Christmas because it shows the importance of the, importance of the glory of God who came to redeem for himself a people in time and history and space. But then you've got Easter. And Easter is not just some ethereal reality. Again, it's concrete In a garden, you see the resurrected king, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's recreation. It's rebirth. There's a newness to it. God in a garden, both body and soul, redeemed. And then Jesus Christ in his redeemed 2.0 body, seen. So that means Christianity, unlike any religion in the whole world, holds together soul and the importance of it and the reality and importance of the physical nature. Matter matters to God. So your future reality is one where you will see loved ones again who are in Christ. You will hug, you will dance, you will drink, you will be satisfied completely by the person of Jesus Christ who's gone before you as the first fruits. So there's an integrity here of physical and of spiritual that Christianity alone, because of King Jesus, brings together. So that means we must care with social concern about the poor and the needy in our community going into a very challenging winter. But we must be equally concerned with body as well as mind, physical as well as spiritual, no hierarchy, equally valid to God. But Jesus' humanity also matters, doesn't it? He knows our need. To our weakness, he is no stranger, says the Christmas hymn. Jesus understands you, friends. He understands your needs as you meet with him this morning. Oh, yeah, what does Jesus know about my needs? Have you ever been betrayed? (coughs) Jesus was betrayed. Have you ever been let down by someone who said they would never let you down? Jesus was let down by people who said they would stay awake with him. Have you ever been lonely? Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Are you facing death? in a way that no one understands. Jesus did that too. Have you ever had your prayers turned down? Jesus had his prayers turned down too. He knows all of our troubles. And yet you can go to him as a wonderful counselor because he knows your needs. You can take your burdens off before him or you can carry them yourself and it will crush you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, verse 5. Jesus Christ is fully God 
but miraculously, mysteriously, he's also God-man. The man-God and the God-man. Thirdly, quickly, Jesus became a servant. Jesus did not just become human, he became a servant. Verse 7, he made himself nothing. Notice the kind of coming down the stairs nature to this passage, if I can say that, with respect. God existing in all his glory, God coming to the earth, it's called the incarnation, God putting on flesh, the very nature of God. And yet he didn't just become a human living in a royal palace. Is it Balmoral or is it London this weekend, dear? That was never in Jesus' dialogue. He became human. He could have become a prince. He could have become a king. But he chose to take on human nature. And then he chose to become a servant. And then he chose to die, even death on the cross. You can't get any higher than the glory of God. And this passage says you can't get any lower to the point that Jesus was willing to descend to for the glory of his Father. He became vulnerable. He became poor. He became needy. He became ordinary. And then he went to the cross, verse 8. And here's what Paul is saying. You must use this truth, Christian friend, to transform your mind or you will be fueled by, verse 3, selfish ambition, and vain conceit, and that will destroy the church. Remember, end of chapter 1, it's not just the opposition you're going to face on the outside. You can destroy a church, you can destroy unity on the inside too, unless you have your mind and your heart transformed. Now why was that, and how do you do that? You need to take this truth that happened outside of you, and you need to take it and apply it to the inside of you. Take this truth that happened outside in history, And apply it to your hearts. Remember verse 3? Your longing for glory. Remember that second word from last week? Kenodoxia. Your empty glory. Your glory hungry. And you can go to all the different places of career and family and financial resources to fill that emptiness. But you will always be empty. Verse 7. Same root word is used. Verse 7. Jesus made himself nothing. Literally says Jesus emptied himself. Empty glory, verse 3. Well, you know what? Jesus, who was so full with the glory that satisfies him to the bounds of eternity, he was willing to empty himself of all of that. And he did it for you. You're empty. Jesus emptied himself so that you might become full. You are desperately trying to satisfy this hunger for glory, for permanence, for renown, for reputation, for significance. Jesus had it all to the max, and yet he was willing to lose it all, to give it all up, so that we might be full. He didn't need to do it. He did it out of a heart of love, for the passionate pursuit of his Father's glory and our great good. You would try all you can to fill that great need in your heart. But there's nothing on this earth that can do it. Save Jesus Christ. He was fully satisfied and he emptied himself. And here we are slavishly working so hard on the hamster wheel of life. And it will do nothing but create burdens for us. We were slaves, but Jesus willingly became a servant. Would be another way to say the same thing. And how did he do that? He emptied himself voluntarily. He emptied himself completely. He took the lowest position and he died the death of a criminal for you. And he did it for me too. And when you see that, 
You go to the Father and you say, Father, accept me because of what he did. Father, I think I understand the gospel where you treated Jesus as if he bore my sin so that now when you see me, you treat me as if I'm bearing his righteousness. All that he did is now mine. All my sin is now his. This wonderful transaction that happens at the cross. And when you take that external historical truth and you apply it into your heart, it will and it can transform your mind. So verse 5, you can now have just a little bit more fully the mind of Christ so that you serve others rather than serving yourselves. In 1 Peter, we are the treasured possession of God. He looks at you and says, I find you with all your mess, with all your confusion, with all your sin. I find you beautiful because your sin is taken from you and it's carried by my son, never to be paid for again. And so as a result, God has exalted Jesus who took the lowest place up to the highest place that at the name of Jesus, that people use as a swear word to their shame, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of the Father. He became that low so that we might be raised up in him to be that high. If you look elsewhere to have this glory hunger filled, your sense of love and security will just oscillate like he loves me, he loves me not on a weekly basis. But if you have this external truth that shapes your mind and your heart, you will have a security, a ballast that not even the strongest suffering will be able to shake. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. To be loved by God, delighted in as an artist, delights in the work, in his work, or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response acknowledgement and welcome into the heart of things the door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last success will not open the door hard work will not open the door you'll still be longing and just be empty for glory if you just try telling yourself i love myself i'm worth it no you're not it's not going to open the door But this will, the one who was most high, became most low. And when you see the reality of the cross and the love of Christ on the cross, that can transform your thinking, can transform a cold heart, and it can make you live for his soul-satisfying glory rather than your own.